I am so excited to let you all know that Menstruation Rewritten Greeting Cards are now available. This is a project I've been working on for a while and I'm really excited to introduce to you all. And if you go to the link in the show notes, you can get a free Menstruation Rewritten Greeting Card. So go check it out. Welcome to Menstruation Rewritten, a podcast for menstruators and non-menstruators who were raised in a culture of menstrual shame and want to rewrite their own, their communities, and their next generation's stories through having conversations about our own menstrual experiences, where we are now, what we wish had been, and thus what can be. A quick note that I think we all know, but... None of this is meant as medical advice. These are just conversations about people's individual experiences. Keep that in mind. Thanks. Xander, who was our guest on the most recent episode, had a lot to say about their time working with reproductive rights activism during the 2020 election. And so I wanted to share some of that content here because it doesn't necessarily fall specifically into the menstruation topic narrowly defined. So here's a bit of bonus content. When we talk about like access to reproductive health and reproductive justice, it's framed as a thing for women. Mm -hmm. And like, it's a very deliberate erasure of trans masculine people and trans men, even from, I would argue within the trans community as well. Like there is a focus on the rights of trans feminine people and trans women. And that's important, right? Like a lot of the discourse that happens about trans rights is trans women. And that's important because like, especially black trans women face such a high level of violence in this country that it's not even funny. Right. And that conversation starts to fail when you realize that like a lot of these people talking about like trans violence and trans issues are white trans women and um like when we look at violence against trans people it's actually predicted more by your race and your um able-bodiedness and your Mm -hmm. class than it is by if you are trans masculine or trans feminine and so there's that erasure from trans justice and then in reproductive health there's even more of an erasure because when we talk about things like access to abortion care right like the second someone's like, hey, maybe consider the fact that like this also impacts trans masculine people and trans men, like right. you get shut down, you get immediately shut down. And this is interesting because in the 2020 election, I was working with a progressive nonprofit voter registration um, drive. And part of what we were talking about in Colorado is we had Proposition 115, which would been would have been a total abortion ban at 22 weeks with no exceptions for Mm -hmm. things in the cases of rape, incest, or um, catastrophic fetal anomalies. And so this was a really horrible bill that thankfully we defeated, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but in collaboration with that, there were like six or seven nonprofits working to defeat this bill because Colorado is a safe haven for abortion, especially abortion later in pregnancy. And so, um, but when we were doing that, like, thankfully, in the com- in the nonprofit that I was with, mm-hmm. and um, my partner was also with another nonprofit as well, mm-hmm. and they were doing way more work on No One 115 than I was. Um, mm-hmm. 
but we had to actually push for gender inclusive language. And we were told by several people who were like doing not, like the ACLU, we right. were also working with the ACLU and the ACLU was like, we need to say women. We cannot say people who get pregnant, um, pregnant people, like we need to be gendering this. So that way we can appeal to more audiences, right? So it was very much like, we need to deliberately erase trans masculine voices trans men, intersex people who can get pregnant, like all of us who fall outside of this like cisgender perisex binary were deliberately erased. And so that's even more problematic now because here's why is um, OBGYN care so freaking inaccessible already. And then you start to add like compounding factors of like being transmasculine on that, being black, being Latinx, like being indigenous, especially like those three identities, especially mm-hmm. you start to see trans men and transmasculine people, especially um, of color, opting to do at home abortions, like a staggering amount are doing at home abortions. And so you have these like white feminists arguing for access to abortion care and being like, we don't want to go back to coat hangers when the reality is, is that for trans people, coat hangers are safer than going to an actual abortion provider because like there's no trans informed care. There's such a dehumanization of trans people in general. And then there's a deliberate erasure of trans masculine people from within contemporary, even trans rights spaces that are so geared towards trans women and Mm -hmm in reproductive health where it's like when we were like hey maybe use the word birthing people yes women freaked out and I'm like I don't know how many times I've had to say I'm like I am not taking away your right to identify as a woman your want to be a mother your want to breastfeed like you can use those words for yourself and I want to empower you to do that because that's your identity right but I am not a woman Right. I am not someone who would breastfeed, right? And so when I was like in these conversations, I'm like, I am asking, like, I am honoring your language and I am asking that in the conversation, you also honor me too, as someone who's like a person who used to menstruate and who right. has a vagina. Like, I'm not a woman. Right. And like me asking for you to use language that includes both of us isn't erasing you but it is pretty deliberately erasing me so that's where it's like saying birthing person saying menstruator saying people who menstruate saying yeah pregnant people like all of those are wider nets right you're saying like let's so the fact that it's not the word that you used to use like not you personally but like the term that a woman might use to describe herself it's like, well, if we go broader, you get to be here and I get to be here. <laughs> and if we go narrower, you're just taking me out of this equation. Yeah, I don't understand like the offense that women take to that, but. Yeah, because I'm just like, just say pregnant person. Right. Like that encompasses so many people who can get pregnant. It's not just cisgender women, right? Because so many people can get pregnant. And then there's even cisgender women who are infertile. And so saying women is also, I imagine, like I've seen a lot of cis women who are also infertile 
are some of the best trans advocates, quite honestly, because they're like, you are sitting here saying that like our ability to reproduce defines womanhood and I can't do that. So are you saying I'm not a woman, even though I'm it, it's biological essentialism at its core, right? Like it's just, it's a dominance of whiteness in spaces. It's a dominance of like cisgender, heteronormative, perisex, which is the, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the term perisex. So intersex is the term that we use to refer to like the variety of conditions that can impact your like biological sex mm-hmm. characteristics and like influence what those can look like. And so perisex just means like, that is kind of like the cisgender of like, you have XX or XY. And so therefore you are not intersex, you are perisex. Mm-hmm. And so it's just such a like, view essentialist view of like this is the only ways to be and then when you say that it's so detrimental especially to like I feel like even in conversations about periods and trans spaces it's dominated by trans feminine voices and especially white trans feminine voices and so which is unfortunate because I think it's such an important topic to talk about the fact that like more transmasculine people would prefer to do an at-home abortion, like a self-abortion at home, mm-hmm. than seek out very safe right. medical care. And so a lot of actually trans-informed care providers do offer at-home, like the most safe at-home methods they can for trans patients, right. which is really good. Yes. But and I know, a lot, I know a number of cis women who have also done at-home abortions. But in the way that you're describing of like going first, you go to the OBGYN or go to Planned Parenthood and you get the prescription. Whereas I feel like what you're describing is like self-induced. Yeah. It's self-induced. Any medical care. Yeah. It's, it's (laughs) self-induced without any medical care. And so then that ends up becoming very dangerous, especially because it is like the, like when we talk about like back alley abortions, like that is the reality for a lot of transmasculine people, especially transmasculine people who are low income or um, people of color, especially mm-hmm. our black and Latinx and indigenous community members um, face already such steeped oppression based on those identities. And then like medical care is just, even more inaccessible and so like if you are like yeah so that's like my component of that is like erasure has very direct consequences and it's I've seen it framed a lot as like oh you're invisibility and you're invisible and that's invisibility or your stealth and that's a privilege but it's not invisibility right like if a trans person decides to go stealth which is like it's a thing that binary some binary trans people do and that's just like meaning that like you don't really tell anyone that you're trans and that you are far enough along in your medical transition if you decide that's right for you to pass as cis. And so stealth and being erased are two very different things and they're often conflated. And so there's like a very deliberate erasure of transmasculine voices. And so I think that that needs to be better. Yes. Because like at the surface level, like it might just seem performative to just say like people who are pregnant. But if you're just saying like women's access to abortion, like you're leaving out a variety of people who also need OBGYN care and who already face a lot of stigma and shame and uh, like 
just flat out discrimination trying to access that OBGYN care. And that's one of those things where I feel like the terminology matters because terminology always matters, but in that, in legal and like in passing laws, it matters a lot because those are the types of technicalities that then can be used to hurt people. Yeah. And I think too, an example is, is that a lot of like red states um, are, if a person who's pregnant miscarries and then they're found to have like something in their system, even though it's not related to their miscarriage. I think this just happened to a, um, a woman in Oklahoma, I believe, where she was um, misusing substances and then had a miscarriage. But in her court trial, the OBGYN actually testified that the substance had nothing to do with the miscarriage, right? Mm -hmm. But she was still convicted of manslaughter. Like she was still convicted of manslaughter and tried for murder. And so like, that's a very real reality. And so as I mentioned earlier, we don't know what testosterone does to your reproductive system. Like we don't know if it causes infertility, if it doesn't cause infertility, but what mm-hmm. we do know is that it does, it's not a form of birth control, right? Like it trans masculine people and trans men can still absolutely get pregnant on T mm-hmm. and um, for um, especially like trans people who decide to carry a pregnancy and they've been on T for a while, it's a very involved process. Like you have to stop T you usually have to do some like of the IVF treatments and you have to have very supervised care for that pregnancy because it's considered a very high risk pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, But some trans masculine people and trans men still do that and have very beautiful enriching pregnancies and give birth to like beautiful, healthy babies, but it's a very involved process, but you can still absolutely get pregnant while you're on testosterone. And so then it becomes like, if you're a trans man, for example, who's sleeping, who's gay and you sleep with men. And so you don't like, let's say you just don't use a condom and then you're fine. And then all of a sudden, like 10 weeks later, you find out that you are pregnant and you're like, oh shit. Right. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh God. And then like testosterone super duper increases your risks of miscarrying. And so when we look at those laws that are like, if you have this in your body and you miscarry, we're going to charge you for murder of this fetus. That's not even considered like viable outside of the womb yet. Right. right? Like that woman who was convicted was 14 weeks pregnant, which isn't e- like, that's a miscarriage. That's not even like right. viability outside of the womb yet. Like that's right. nowhere even close to viability outside of the womb. Like if you have that testosterone in your system and you are in that state and you have a miscarriage and then you go to seek medical care, like which happened to this woman. And then they're like, you have a lot of testosterone in your system. You could be charged with murder just because you're a trans person on hormones and your T would be considered you being reckless towards that fetus, which is that whole thing is just horrible. Like that's just meant to disenfranchise pregnant people but like that's the reality too it's like the way that those laws are coded it's absolutely coded to have such a disproportionate impact on women and pregnant people who already have such marginalized identities and then you add like if you are a trans masculine person on t to that like you could be convicted of murder for having a miscarriage because you're on testosterone and weren't even sure if you could get pregnant or not in the first place and so among other things, like that's an important part of the conversation of reproductive justice that's just not happening. 
I hope Xander's explanation will help those who have not thought about these terminology pieces in the past, and for those of you who have, it will be a reminder to take these things into consideration. So this next piece didn't fit anywhere specific, but it's a little bit of the joy and positive impact that Xander has had by being Xander, and I wanted to make sure I included it somewhere. You keep mentioning that you went to like a small school. I went to a Montessori school and that was a K through 12 school. And there were like 300 students in that like K through 12, like three to 500 max. And that was K through 12. And so I think in my middle school, the highest amount of people we had was like 112. And then it was really interesting because I switched schools. Um, The way that the grades were set up, middle school was seventh through ninth grade. And so I switched halfway through my ninth grade year to public school. So I went from that tiny little Montessori to like a giant public high school. And that was a culture shock. And then I wasn't out yet. But when I did come out at my high school, I was actually the first person to actually transition at that school. And so there was another person and he was already out as trans, but he had come out in middle school. So they he came in and they were like, we know exactly what to do with you. So we're just not going to worry about you. (laughs) And then I came out and that was a whole other, whole other thing. And so that was, it was hard, but I was the first person to actually transition at my public high school. So. That must've been hard. It was, but it was also very much worth it. So I've had a lot of people, especially now in my adulthood who I went to high school with, or even during while I was in high school who have, told me that seeing me like unapologetically own my identity and my truth um, later is what empowered them to transition or to embrace their queerness or to make decisions for themselves in their lives about like what they want to do that's true to them. And so that's, that like hits my heart in a whole other way that I don't have words to describe of like, that's such a powerful feeling because like I don't feel like I'm doing anything spectacular but like I also don't back down from who I am and I don't let people back me down from that and so hearing that that's done some good for like people across a variety like not even trans identities is like Mm -hmm. pretty cool but even more cool to know too that like I've helped probably I I know like four people from my high school who have later come out as trans and like either told me in high school and I was the first person they ever told or like who have told me now that they've transitioned, like seeing you like just be unapologetic about who you were in spaces and like not letting people like take that away from you. was like what gave me the courage to come out as an adult. And I'm like, that's cool. Wow. That's amazing. I'm so glad that you had that impact on them, but also I'm very glad. I like when people tell people that (laughs) you know like they could have had that and not have told you so I'm glad that they reached out and like you've been able to kind of get get that back for yourself thank you for joining us on this episode of menstruation rewritten we so appreciate you being here and hope that you found this conversation both relatable and insightful If so, we'd love if you could leave a rating or a view in whichever podcast app you found us in so that others can find this content and get a chance to listen. 
Our intro and outro music is an alteration of A Surprising Power by Midair Machine. See you next full moon! This month's Modern Media Menstrual Mention comes from the movie We Broke Up. What's more romantic than getting married at the place where you got your first period? Think on it. See you next full moon.